0: So the joke on Twitter and among several of our clients is this isn't so much as a Chapter 11 as it is an LBO, owing to the staggering increase in debt the company is taking on.
1: From our remote offices in the New York tri-state area, welcome to No More, Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. This podcast offers conversations with our analysts to get their perspective and expertise on the global credit markets. If you're an investment professional that touches the wide universe of fixed income, you will want to give us a listen. We are living in a surreal life right now. Our team of nearly 100 analysts continues to publish content to our more than 15,000 readers across global credit markets. I am Christopher Snow, the moderator, and I'm here with Charlotta Chung, our head of U.S. legal research, and Andy DeRees, our co-head of investment-grade research and senior utilities analyst. Hi, Charlotta. Hi, Andy. Hi, Chris. We're going to cover a lot of information in the next 20 minutes or so, including an outlook for what an eMERGE PAC gas will look like. So let's just dive right in. This was a unique bankruptcy as the equity market cap never dropped below $2 billion. So why did they actually file bankruptcy? And how much did the wildfires end up costing? Andy, this is the second time you've followed this company through the bankruptcy process. What happened?
0: So quite simply, their equipment was found to have caused both the 2017 and 2018 wildfires. And it's also looking like they caused the much smaller 2019 wildfires while they were in bankruptcy. And under California's unique inverse condemnation legal precedent, plaintiffs don't have to prove gross negligence to recover damages from the utility. So initial estimates were as high as 30 to $40 billion of damages. But last summer and fall, they ultimately settled with the vast majority of the claims for $25.5 billion. So to break that down, $13.5 billion is going to victims for the uninsured and underinsured damages, $11 billion is going to insurance companies for claims they've paid out or will pay out, and we'll talk about that in a bit, and $1 billion is going to local governments. So to put this $25.5 billion in context, prior to filing bankruptcy, pg e generated around $6 billion of EBITDA, so the damage is around four times EBITDA.
2: The other thing I will add is that from our perspective, pg and primary purpose in its Chapter 11 filing was to address wildfire liabilities in a form that could bind the victims. In bankruptcy, the company was able to crystallize these liabilities as pre-petition claims that would then receive distribution via the bankruptcy plan rather than through piecemeal litigation. pg and plan does exactly that. It provides for the establishment of a trust and the imposition of a channeling injunction for wildfire claims. Essentially, this means that the trust gets funded with the distributions contemplated by the company's plan, i.e. the settlement amounts that have been agreed to with the various classes of wildfire claimants. And then once that plan goes effective, the liabilities for those claims are assumed by the trust, and thereafter, all recoveries must be made from the assets of the trust. Once that happens, wildfire claimants can no longer seek compensation from GG&E or its assets to satisfy their claims. Chapter 11 process also allowed the company to stay all litigation that was pending against it in various courts immediately upon its filing. This helped cut down on litigation costs and also allowed the company to manage its wildfire liabilities in a more controlled manner. Notably, the automatic stay was lifted with respect to certain wildfire plaintiffs' claims during the course of the Chapter 11 cases, but its process dramatically streamlined the amount of litigation pending against the company. It also allowed for the appointment of an official committee of tort claimants, a.k.a. wildfire victims, to represent their interests and negotiate on their behalf through the Chapter 11 process. I'll finally add that the Chapter 11 cases were simplified by its pre-petition capital structure. Its debt was unsecured and only held at two entities without any subsidiary guarantees. This essentially put all creditors on equal footing with respect to claims
1: this bankruptcy also was characterized by changing facts on the ground as it evolved one of those was ab1054 you know how does that fund work how is it funded and how much will pay out in future fires
0: sure chris so this was a 21 billion dollar fund that was steamrolled through the california legislature the day before their summer recess last year it was almost comical to listen to some legislators abstain from voting on the bill in subcommittee because they didn't have any details on it only to turn around and vote in favor of it the very next day in the full session. So half of this fund, 10.5 billion, is coming from refinancing and a surcharge on customer bills related to the previous Pacific Gas and Electric bankruptcy in 2001 that was set to expire this year. So, while policymakers could technically claim it was neutral to ratepayers, that might be a stretch. Another $7.5 billion is coming from the three investor owned utilities, with Pacific Gas and Electric making the largest contribution at $4.6 billion. And then every year, these utilities contribute a combined $300 million that gets the fund up to $21 billion. So, as long as wildfire claims against the fund from a utility are deemed an eligible claim and are over either $1 billion or the amount of insurance the utility has, the wildfire fund will pay the claim.
2: AB 105.4 also creates a burden shifting mechanism for utilities, which relates to their ability to recover costs and expenses from a covered fire. Essentially, the bill provides that a utility can recover costs and expenses if they are just and reasonable. These expenses will be considered just and reasonable if the utility acts in a way that would be consistent with a reasonable utility acting in good faith in similar circumstances. The burden is initially on the utility to show that its conduct is reasonable in order to recover these costs. However, if the utility has a valid safety certification, as provided for in AB 105.4, at the time during which a covered fire unites, then its conduct is deemed reasonable, and the burden shifts to another party to raise serious doubt about the reasonableness of the utility's conduct. If serious doubt is raised, then the burden switches back to utility to show that its conduct was reasonable. Additionally, some people had initially hoped that PG&E's bankruptcy filing would lead to the repeal or modification of California's inverse condemnation law that Andy mentioned earlier. However, this has not occurred, and it seems to us that AB-1054 is an attempt to mitigate the risk of financial devastation to utilities caused by wildfires while still preserving the ability of property owners to receive compensation for their losses from utilities who are liable under the inverse condemnation statute.
1: Yeah, the AP-1054 is interesting. You know, certainly as you know, investors look to see whether or not this mitigates risk in the future, uh, Andy, you've spoken in the past about Berkshire Hathaway comments and their skepticism of that fund. Can you elaborate on that? Sure,
0: Chris. So Greg Abel ran Warren Buffett's utility operations for many years, and he's now the vice chairman of all non-insurance operations at Berkshire, and we have a tremendous amount of respect for him. So after the first fires in 2017, at their New York City Analyst Day, he was asked about potentially buying Pacific Gas and Electric, and he essentially said, no way, another big fire could wipe out my entire equity check under inverse condemnation. So then fast forward, after the 2018 fire, he was back in New York City for the Analyst Day, and he was asked the same question, to which he more or less replied, see, I told you so. And he was asked about buying it now with the AB 1054 fund. His response was, as long as inverse condemnation was on the books, they would not be investing in California utility assets, because in his words, who is to say another really big fire doesn't just bankrupt the fund? So while we acknowledge $21 billion would be an enormous fire and it alleviates a lot of risk, we still view it as equity risk, not bondholder risk, and certainly not investment grade bondholder risk. At the recent virtual Berkshire Energy Analyst Day, Mr. Abel reiterated the same view.
1: All right, let's move on from the wildfire fund. PCG obviously has a massive amount that it has to fund. Where is it coming up with this 25 and
0: a Sure, Chris, as you can imagine, you know, it's very important politically to make sure none of those payouts are coming from ratepayers. So the simple answer is it is coming from a combination of new equity and holds code debt with Knighthead Capital and Abrams Capital leading a group agreeing to buy nine to $12 billion of new equity. And half the victim settlement is also coming from new shares. So at the high end of the backstop plus the half the victim settlement that is 19 billion of the total 25.5 billion coming in equity and essentially the balance coming from new holds code debt. Or another way of looking at it is the insurance settlement is 11 billion and local government settlement is 1 billion. Those are coming in cash. While the fire victims 13.5 billion is half cash, half stock. So that is a $19 billion cash requirement coming from the 9 to 12 billion of new equity plus new holds code debt. They've also budgeted 10 billion contribution from securitization bonds and short-term utility debt, which they argue won't be paid for by ratepayers. The point of the recent securitization application was filed under SB 901, which was a law passed after the 2017 wildfires, which gives them permission to do that. And it will very much be paid for by ratepayers. We would point out the money is obviously very fungible. And to the extent the company is ramping up its wildfire mitigation spending, you know, two and a half billion dollars this year, which is recoverable for shareholders, there is definitely some gray area here on what ratepayers are paying for.
1: You know, Andy mentioned the ratepayers. You know, there's another legacy constituent here, which is the existing bondholders. Charlotte, how are those being treated?
2: Sure, Chris. So I think it's important first to frame up the context for the ultimate treatment of those existing bondholders. When PG&E initially filed, it had an exclusive period of time to set forth a Chapter 11 plan, and it did so, and it filed a plan that provided for very different treatment of its legacy unsecured bondholders than the existing plan that is currently out for solicitation and voting. Upon filing, this plan uh, garnered significant objection from many of the unsecured bondholders of the company. An ad hoc group of these bondholders, together with a committee of wildfire victims, received permission from the court to file a competing plan which provided for different treatment of the company's unsecured bondholders, including reinstatement of higher coupon bonds. There were also arguments over the treatment afforded forged creditors with respect to payment of post-petition interest and make whole premium. Ultimately, the company and the creditors supporting the competing plan reached a settlement on the treatment afforded to the different classes of creditors, and the court also issued an important ruling on the appropriate rate of post-petition interest for unsecured creditors. The current plan reflects that settlement, including reinstatement and the issuance of new secured debt. Under the current plan, bondholders are being separated into several classes. First is the utility-impaired senior note claims. The next is utility-reinstated senior note claims. And finally, utility-short-term senior note claims, each of which is receiving different treatment. The impaired senior note claims include the notes that mature outside of 2023 with coupons greater than 5%. These notes are being refinanced with two new series of secured debt, $3.1 billion of notes at a 4.55% coupon due in 2030, and $3.1 billion of new secured notes at 4.95% coupons due in 2050. This is the full principal amount of the claims of $6.2 billion. Additionally, note holders in this class will receive post-petition interest at the 2.59% federal judgment rate for the period between the petition date in January 2019 and the company's emergence from bankruptcy sometime later this year. The reinstated senior note claims are the other bonds from the utility with maturity dates outside 2023 and coupons below 5%. There are many series of these, totaling $9.575 billion. These notes are being reinstated at their original coupons and maturity dates and will accrue interest at the contract rate. Additionally, because the utility is issuing the new notes as secured notes, the equal and ratable clauses in these reinstated notes will be triggered and they will also become secured obligations of the utility. The utility short-team senior note claims are those bonds maturing through 2022. Like the impaired senior note claims mentioned earlier, these notes will be refinanced with two series of secured bonds, 875 million of notes at a 3.45% coupon due 2025, and 875 million of notes at 3.75% coupon due 2028, in an aggregate principal amount of $1.75 billion. Also, similar to the impaired senior notes, the note holders in this class will receive post-petition interest at the 2.59% federal judgment rate for the period between the petition date and PG&E's emergence from bankruptcy. Interesting, and in connection to the post-petition interest decision that I mentioned earlier, because the existing bonds were unsecured when the company filed for Chapter 11, the holders would ordinarily not be entitled to post-petition interest, as secured creditors would be under the bankruptcy code. However, there is an exception which rarely applies, and that is that where a debtor is solvent, unsecured creditors may be entitled to receive post-petition interest. In California, which is where the company filed for Chapter 11, the Ninth Circuit has determined that where unsecured creditors can get post-petition interest on account of being a claimant of a solvent debtor, the applicable rate of interest is the federal judgment rate rather than the coupon.
1: Thanks, Shawna. We'll talk a little bit later in the podcast about the preservation of principal and bankruptcy for utilities. But for now, Andy, can you speak to where the so-called smart money invested and how they navigated the bankruptcy?
0: Thanks, Chris. For all of 2019, there were two competing plans with sharp, sophisticated investors on both sides. And to overly simplify things for the purposes of this podcast, the bondholders essentially wanted to reinstate their high coupon bonds, Charlotta mentioned earlier, put up new money and essentially wipe out the existing shareholders. Knighthead, Baupost, and Abrams Capital were the leads in the equity side and obviously didn't want to get wiped out. PIMCO, Elliott, and Davidson Kempner were running point on the bond side. So having two competing plans allowed the governor, regulators, and the bankruptcy judge to play each plan off each other for things they wanted to see, like minimal hold code debt. However, in January of this year, the two plans merged with the bondholders agreeing to haircut the coupon of their high coupon bonds in exchange for a nice fee and the ability to potentially participate in the equity backstop at the same discounted PE as Nighthead. The real smart money here was buying the insurance subrogation claims from the insurance companies at well below par, in some cases under $0.50, cents, despite those claims being peri to bondholders and fire victims. From what we've read and heard, Bowpost was a large buyer of those
1: claims. Well, let's talk about those fire victims. You've written about the victims getting their stock at a fixed P.E. versus the backstop investors whose P.E. is fluctuating. Can you give an overview of these P.E.s?
0: Sure. So under terms of the victim settlement and the equity backstop, the victims will be getting half of their $13.5 billion settlement in stock at a fixed P.E. ratio of 14.9 times on 2021 EPS. So this compares favorably to the utility sector as a whole at 17 times, and that multiple for the sector was 20 times pre-COVID-19. However, investors obviously apply a California discount given the heightened regulatory and wildfire risk. And Edison, the owner of Southern California Edison in Southern California, trades it only 12 times. Again, prior to COVID, even Edison was above that 14.9 times multiple. So it is hard to point fingers at anybody for choosing that multiple. So we have been writing about this valuation disconnect since March, and at the recent 14.9 times buy-in versus Edison at 12 times, the victims are essentially looking at around a 10 cents in the dollar discount to par in their claims against Pacific Gas and Electric. This is obviously not ideal for fire victims who lost loved ones, homes, cars, etc., cetera, through no fault of their own. Making matters worse, the equity backstop group put a ceiling in their buy-in PE of 10 times, but allowed it to fluctuate on the downside with the overall market. So their buy-in now is closer to nine times than 10 times. So that obviously creates some problems with the optics here of New York Hedge Fund Group getting in the equity at nine to 10 times PE and a pretty big discount to where PG&E will trade versus the victims coming in at 14.9 times, which is likely going to be a premium to where PCG trades. The reality though is PCG desperately needs that hedge fund cash, Nobody else is putting up $10 billion of new cash, and there are no competing plans for the judge to choose from at this point.
1: Thanks, Andy. We're getting closer to the end than the beginning. What are some of the key days to monitor going forward?
2: So May 15th was the bar date for creditors to vote on the Chapter 11 plan. It's interesting to note here in connection with Andy's discussion earlier about the value to the equity contribution for wildfire victims, is that there was concern that the wildfire victims might not actually vote to support the plan because of the risk of the shrinkage in value of their equity distribution. The official committee of tort complaints went so far as to request permission to send a letter to the victims advising them not to vote on a plan until the issues relating to the equity settlement could be resolved. Eventually, the judge denied this request in April, and representatives for other victims indicated that they expect their clients to support the plan. Ultimately, we think that once the votes are submitted by May 15th, We expect wildfire victims to vote in favor of the plan, particularly because if they don't vote in favor of the plan, it will threaten the company's ability to participate in the ab 105 for wildfire fund. Additionally, PG&E's plan must be confirmed no later than June 30th in order to qualify for participation. Finally, the company has indicated that it intends to emerge and issue the refinancing bonds sometime later this August.
1: Thanks. So that leads into, you know, what is the balance sheet going to look like versus the peer group?
0: So the joke on Twitter and among several of our clients is this isn't so much as a Chapter 11 as it is an LBO, owing to the staggering increase in debt the company is taking on. But remember, as we said earlier, it is a gray area between debt being used to fund victim payouts and debt being used to pay for around $2.5 to $3 billion of annual wildfire mitigation spending. So prior to filing Chapter 11, pg had $22 billion of debt, including a $3 billion revolver draw. The current proposal is to come out with $38 billion of debt or $46 billion including securitization. Excluding the revolver draw right before bankruptcy, the holdco had almost no debt, and now it's going to come out with around $4.5 billion. So in total, it's a near tripling of the total debt on the balance sheet. But owing to the lower coupons, higher customer rates, and how the agencies view securitization debt, the credit metrics, at least for the opco bonds, will still come in with very solid investment-grade utility metrics.
1: So what do you think it's going to trade?
0: Well, that's obviously the million dollar question for sure. So investors have been using EIX Edison Holdco bonds as a rough proxy for where Gas Opco bonds uh, will trade. And that makes sense to us, you know, within around 30, 40, 50 bips or so. The stronger positioning in the Opco at Gas versus the Holdco at Edison is offset by much greater fire risk at Gas. So right now, the reinstated 25s through 27s, which Charlotta talked about earlier, if you back out the interest they're going to get from mispayments are applying spreads of around 325, 350 or so with Edison bonds around 50 to 75 dips inside of that. So for investors who agree as Edison holdco as the proxy and this deal going through, there is some upside in those bonds for those investors. It's also worth mentioning, Chris, that we travel around the country, as you know, or we used to prior to COVID-19, and I'd say one in every five or six major clients said they would simply avoid all California utilities, owing to the Pacific Gas and Electric bankruptcy in 2001, and then the San Bruno explosion in 2010. So while that used to be one in five, one in six clients, we think that will probably increase to one in four or so. So maybe that's a buying opportunity, maybe not. So we're not comfortable taking next fire risk, even with the AB 1054 fund. And we point out Northern California received half its normal snowfall this year. And counterintuitively, dry winters actually translate into lower fire risk. So when California had a five year drought from 2012 to 16, they had no forest fires. But when the drought ended in 2017, Lake Tahoe had absolutely epic ski seasons, 60 foot seasons of snow. All that water then runs off into the streams and creeks and leads to significant vegetation growth that then turns into kindling during the hot california summers and increases the fire risk this year snowfall levels are half their normal so in theory fire risk is muted this year it's also worth pointing out we see no buyers for the new holdco bonds at anything under double b spread levels of plus 500 regardless of what they're actually rated. From an index perspective, excluding the hold co and the securitization debt, PCG could have around $35 billion of investment grade eligible debt versus the Barclays Utility Index with a market value of around $480 billion. So there will be index buying here for
1: sure. So Andy, maybe you could parse that a little bit for yourself. You know, inverse condemnation, it looks like it's here to say. And you mentioned some savvy and industry participants that are worried about potential liabilities. Do you get comfortable with California utility debt? And if not, what do you like?
0: So no, we're not comfortable with California utility debt. You know, we're very cognizant of the new secured status of the opco debt versus the unsecured in the last bankruptcy and the 1054 fund but until pacific gas and electric really has the ability to do targeted blackouts during fire season instead of entire counties until they actually trim their trees along major roads we're still on the sidelines here so while spreads in the mid 300 range are obviously attractive to ig managers in the utility space they're still inside the low triple b index as a whole and if you utility investors really want to reach for those yields we have a very positive view on Vistra secured investment grade 29 bonds with spreads in line with what PacGas is implying. Similar to PacGas, Vistra has been through a recent bankruptcy, but unlike PacGas, Vistra is generating incredibly strong free cash flows equal to around 20% of its outstanding debt. And it is doing so without having burned down entire towns and villages in California.
1: Thanks, Andy. As uh, so we wind up the podcast, maybe I'll turn it to both of you guys. What is the best investor takeaway that you learned from this process?
2: I thought there were two. One is that cross ownership within the structure can dramatically impact settlement, likelihood and the ultimate outcomes. So in understanding the different motivations of those parties and how they impact this is really, really important. The other thing is that legal precedent matters. Post-petition interest issue here was heavily disputed and litigated, but ultimately, because a controlling precedent existed in the jurisdiction because of a higher court ruling, the bankruptcy judge kept to that precedent and ultimately decided on the lower interest rate for unsecured bondholders.
0: Thanks, Charlotta. You know, from my end, we see two sort of takeaways from this whole process. First was the cross-ownership of the subrogation claims and the equity by Post should have led us to see a settlement was likely and kudos to Bowpost for benefiting for that because as soon as they announced that settlement on the subrogation claims the equity rally when it was announced so that was a win-win those guys made a lot of money on that our second takeaway is that it is essentially impossible to lose principal investing in state regulated opcos This company caused $30 to $40 billion in damages. They settled for $25.5 billion, and they're coming out of bankruptcy with $24 billion more debt than they went in with. So some might say they merely debt-funded the entire thing, although that misses the substantial increase in fire mitigation some of that debt is going towards, as well as their $5 billion contribution to the AB1054 fund. But the overall takeaway is it is very, very challenging to lose principal investing in state-regulated opco
1: utilities. Thank you both. Thank you, Shalana. Thank you, Andy. Uh, it's been really enlightening as pac is looking to emerge from his bankruptcy. So thanks for taking the time as we wind up earning season.
2: No problem. Thank you, Chris.
0: Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening.
1: All right. Thank you to the listeners. As always, you can find our research at our website, creditsites.com, or if you're not a subscriber, please contact us at sales at creditsites.com. Credit Sites Disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or produced in whole or in part. Neither Credit Sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information complained in this podcast. Credit Sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is Credit Sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. Receipt by the listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by credit sites or its affiliates.